Now we're continuing on here in the book of Matthew. And I want to just warn you to have your Bibles ready. We've got a lot of data to cover today in this section. I think this is a section that should all be covered together. Otherwise, I would have broken it up more. But uh, dear ones, I want you to remember that last time, so I'm going to set my timer. Last time we were in Matthew chapter 10, we had learned that the disciples of Christ were to go out, preach the gospel. They were to heal the sick. And they could trust God for the provisions necessary for their mission. Now, today we're going to learn that the 12 disciples, and really by extension, all disciples, even including us, that we must have the resolve to be willing to suffer for the gospel, yet also we're called to have the wisdom to avoid troubles where possible. Now, we're also going to learn today that just as Jesus promised provision for the material needs needed, for the mission field, he also has promised to fulfill the spiritual needs by giving us the very words that are to be spoken before the unbelieving world in the future time of confrontation. And so what this message is really about is Jesus telling his followers what we can expect during these last days as we go out with the confession of Christ upon our lips. He's telling us everything in advance so that we won't be surprised, so that we won't have a crisis of faith. That's really what this passage is about. That's why I think it should all be read together. Okay, so with that, let me begin in verse 16, where Jesus here is going to explain to his followers that they must be innocent but not naive. Notice he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, I want to pull up my pointer. The first thing I want to point out is Jesus uses the simile that we go out as sheep. Now, recall the sheep metaphor is prominent in the Old Testament where the people of God are referred to as God's flock or his sheep, and that's what Jesus is borrowing from. Now, the sheep simile here is very important for two reasons. Number one, of course, sheep are precious to the shepherd. Who's the great high shepherd but Jesus Christ? We as his sheep are precious to him. But there's another reason why this metaphor or the simile is apropos here, and that's because sheep are notoriously slow of mind and easy to kill. That's another reason why sheep is being used. And so Jesus' point is that we, like sheep, are going out in the midst of the world of wolves, and they're going to want to devour us. Satan and his minions stand behind the desire to destroy the flock of Christ. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 7.15. Please turn your Bibles to Matthew 7.15. I, w- I just want you to be aware of what we had looked at last time, or not last time, but some time ago when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Matthew 7.15. This is wisdom that he's already revealed to us. And notice he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So in the world, it's filled with ravenous ravenous wolves who want to devour us. They may come from our own midst, or they may come from the outside. So in light of that, notice he says, so, and by the way, we see so, and you should ask, so why is that important? Well, the so is un. It's an inferential conjunction. And what that means is in light of the fact that we are sheep in the midst of wolves, do this. He says, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So again, in light of the fact that we're going out in the midst of wolves, we should be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, notice the term shrewd that I have highlighted there in the box. It actually comes from the Greek term phronimos, and that's important because it links us back to the craftiness of the serpent in Genesis 3.1. That is the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so there's a deliberate tie-in that Jesus is making. Notice it says, now the serpent was more crafty. Again, in the Greek text, that's phronimos, the same as shrewd. He was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. Now, dear ones, obviously here, Jesus is using these similes for a reason. And I think the reason is very clear that just as sheep are proverbially slow of mind and easy to kill... The snake is proverbially crafty and cunning when it comes to self-preservation. 
And so I think obviously Jesus is calling us to be shrewd as believers in the way that we do ministry. Meaning that, yes, we are certainly willing to suffer, but we don't go out leading with our chin. That, yes, trouble may find us, but as believers, we're not those who are looking for trouble. Now, the shrewdness of the serpent could give the wrong impression that somehow we are to be underhanded, double-minded, devious, with guile, deception, etc. And that's why he balances it by saying, and innocent as doves. Now, the dove simile is important because in the ancient Near East, doves were symbols of tranquility and they were symbols of innocence. So think about it. Not much has changed with the animal world. Snakes are still cunning and crafty and doves are still innocent and they are tranquil. And so that's why he doubles down with this. Dear ones, you and I are not to be involved with cunningness in the sense of being evil or having lips that have guile or deception upon them. We are simply to go out into the world and to proclaim Christ, but to be smart in the way we do it. Again, trouble may find us, but we are to be those who don't necessarily go and look for trouble. Now, I'm going to fill this more out when we get into our applications, but for the sake of time, let's keep going. We notice here now in verses 17 through 18 that Jesus wants his followers to expect rejection and persecution in the world. Notice he says, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, notice here when he says, beware of men, Jesus is filling out what the wolves look like. The wolves are mankind, men and women. The unregenerate world is filled with people who will hate believers because we belong to Jesus Christ. Notice he says, they will hand you over to the courts and they'll scourge you in their synagogues. What this shows us is that the particular men that Jesus has in mind, at least initially here, are Israelites. It is the Israelites, obviously, who ran the synagogues and who engaged in scourging in the synagogues. In fact, I looked at a source dated from around 200 A.D., so many years after Jesus would have been saying these words to his disciples. And the source mentioned that in the synagogues in Israel, it would, they would have had 23 members of a council that were responsible for leveling out different types of uh, different types of money, for example, if a, a widow needed money, but also discipline. And scourging was part of that discipline. Now, the discipline was always modified by Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3 limited the scourging to being that of 39 lashes. In fact, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Now, the reason I want you to turn there is I want to build a very important case that here Jesus, as he's addressing the 12 disciples, he's also talking about disciples that will come in the future. And so if you look on the screen just quickly, the you here is more than just the 12. It has to do with all believers for all time, ultimately, and I'll show you why. Notice what Paul said, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Notice he said, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. In other words, Paul, if you look on the screen, was one who was scourged in the synagogues, but the 12 never were. That's important for our interpretation. This is predictive prophecy that Christ is giving as to what will occur to disciples that come later, even after the 12. That's what's going on. So the you has to be more than just the 12. It applies ultimately in a telescoping effect to the 12, to the later disciples, and then ultimately all believers. That's how we are to understand it. In fact, let me give you a quote from R.T. France, the great scholar in the book of Matthew, listen to what he says. He says, quote, this punishment, and he's referring to the scourging in the synagogues. He says, this punishment was applied for a variety of moral and ritual offenses against the Mosaic law, including the breaking of food laws. And it is perhaps on this point that later Christians, notice later Christians, such as Paul, fell foul of the authorities. But at the time of the mission of the twelve, 
that particular issue had not arisen, and we have no evidence of such judicial proceedings against Jesus' 12 disciples before his death. Jesus' words here are therefore looking further into the future. This is very important for our interpretation of this text. What Jesus is doing is he's doing something called telescoping, where certainly he is sending out the 12, but in the telescoping effect, he's referring to what will occur to later disciples and believers as well. In fact, we see that very idea in verse 18, where Jesus here is prophesying that the gospel through later believers will come to governors and kings, even to the Gentiles. And sure enough, when we look in the book of Acts, that's what we see after the reaching out to the Samaritans. That yes, the gospel will go even to those who are at the ends of the earth. Now, a couple of important points here, I think. Number one, this all shows us that Jesus, while talking to his 12, is certainly referring to a wider group of disciples. And so as he's laying out what he's laying out before us in Matthew 10, 16 through 23, we have to see that as wisdom for what we will also encounter during the church age or the last days as we go out to proclaim the gospel, as we go out to confess Christ. The second point is the 12 apostles and all Christians afterward really must be prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ's name. Again, we as truth tellers don't go out looking for trouble, but as those who tell the truth of the scriptures, trouble will often find us. And so what this means then is Christianity isn't really about having your best life now. Joel Olstein may claim that and many others in the Word of Faith movement, but does it sound like you may have your best life now when you're scourged or you're handed over or family betrays family member? That doesn't sound like Jesus is promising your best life now. The reason that's important is if we expect our best life now, when we are persecuted and prosecuted, we may have a crisis of faith. Jesus wants to keep us centered in our faith so that you and I know all these things in advance so that we will persevere and continue to confess Christ. That's what this is all about. Now, verses 19 through 21, Christ now explains how God will supply the very words that are needed during the crucial time of confrontation by the world. Notice he says, But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Notice here, the world is going to do what to us? They will hand us over. Now, the implication of being handed over is not a good one. In other words, it's not a good handing over. It's a handing over to persecution and to prosecution. Now, notice he says we're not to worry about what? What we are to say or how we are to say it. He says, for, notice in blue, it will be given you in that hour. Does everyone see in the blue where he says it will be given you? That's a divine passive. So God is promising that he is going to give us the very words at that crucial moment, and as we're going to see, it's by the Spirit. Now, does this mean that as a pastor, I don't have to worry about preparing for this expositional sermon? <laughs> After all, God is going to supply the words at the crucial hour. Or can a seminary student say, you know, those Greek paradigms and vocabulary, who needs to study that? I'll just wait to show up for the test. God will miraculously supply the answer. Well, I think many a pastors and many a seminary students have been disappointed. That's not what Jesus is promising. No, this isn't about being prepared for an expositional sermon. This is about that crucial moment when your life is at stake. When it doesn't matter how many push-ups you do, how many squats you do, how much running you do, how many spiritual things you do, you cannot prepare yourself for the moment where you're going to lose your head or confess Christ. But God is going to supply the answer. And the answer isn't an expositional sermon, but rather the basic doctrines of the faith given with boldness and clarity. And that's something that God providentially has promised that he will do for us 
in the moment of confrontation. In fact, notice here, there's an explanatory for. He explains how this will be accomplished. He says, for it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 15, 26. Turn your Bibles to John 15, 26, because what I want you to see here is that the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring about the confession of Christ. Bob DeWay did a Sunday school series on that years ago when we were at the Fick Auditorium, and I think you can still look that up. It's on our website if you look in the archives. It's one of the best I've ever heard on the role of the Holy Spirit. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to bring about the confession of Christ. So notice here, that's what Jesus promises in John 15, 26. He says, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Every single believer in Jesus Christ is indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to bring us to do what? In the face of confrontation, in the face of persecution and prosecution, the Spirit will bring us to confess Christ. That's the idea. And that's one of the big takeaways that we come from from this section is that we never, ever stop confessing Christ. In fact, as we proceed to Matthew 10.32, you don't have to turn to it, but jot it down, we'll come to it. Everyone who confesses Christ, that is evidence that they belong to Christ and that he will confess them before the Father in heaven. Yes, we must confess Christ. Now, notice here in verse 21, we see that the persecution and hatred of believers is not limited merely to pagan governors or Israelite synagogues, but it even affects familial relationships. In fact, you have brother that will betray his brother. You have parents against their children, children against their parents. And what that shows us is that the sinfulness of the unregenerate world is so profound and the hatred of Christ is so profound that even the familial bonds of siblings and parents and children is not enough. That yes, indeed, the hatred of Christ is so much that even a parent will turn in their only child or their child will turn in their parents who love them so. Now, this also shows us how the ultimate family that you and I are going to have for eternity is really the family of God. And that family, the family of God, is never determined by natural birth, but by those who are born again. And that's important. Bob DeWay is writing a very important article where he's showing that the church is never comprised of those who are merely born of Christian parents. So you'll have these institutions who maybe start out well because they were started by well-meaning Christians, but then they're handed down to the children who are born naturally, but they were never born again. And so the institution slides into apostasy and heresy. We have to know that the true church and those who truly belong to the family of God are never those who are born naturally, but they're born from above. They're born of God. That's what we have to know. Brothers and sisters, the tribulation in the world is such that even families will turn against one another. And I know from talking to some of you in here that you've experienced that very thing. Now, we pray that we never have to be actually prosecuted or persecuted because of such hatred, but you know that this does in fact exist. Again, Jesus is warning us all of these things so that we won't be surprised as we confess Christ in these last days. Now, as we approach verses 22 through 23, we see the need to persevere despite great persecution. Notice it says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, first of all, notice he says you will be hated by all. That doesn't mean every single individual human being out on the planet, but it means all types of unbelievers, the greatest and the lowliest. We will be hated from all quarters. Why? Well, it's not because you and I are necessarily bad people or mean-spirited. It's because we bear his name. Every single person who confesses Christ bears Christ's name. 
And the moment that you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, you were grafted in not only to the promises of Israel, but to their persecutions. But notice Jesus promises that it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, we have to define, I think, notice in the box, what it means to endure to the end. So let me start unpacking what it means to endure to the end. Let's begin, before we get to the box, talk about the term endured. The term endured there comes from a term that has a prefix on it, hupo, then the main verb is meno. Meno is the term remain. Do you remember in John 15 where Jesus says he is the vine, and if we remain in him or abide in him, we'll bear much fruit? That's meno. It means to stay put. It means that when the trials and tribulations of life come, you don't say to yourself, you know, this Jesus, he's gotten me into a lot of trouble. I think I'm going to Buddha or I'm going to be an atheist, or I'm following Marx, or I'm going to be New Age spiritual, or something like that. No, we stay put in the doctrines and the deeds of Christ. The reason the hoopo is put on the meno is because it's hyper-remaining. It accentuates the idea that we really remain in Jesus Christ. Another way of rendering the endured would be to persevere or to remain, to remain put. I think Bob put it this way. He said, stay put. That's a great way of putting it. So we are to stay put in Christ, in doctrine and deed, to what? The end. Now, the reason I want to define this is because when we come to Matthew 24, 13, there's an identical phrase that those who endure to the end will be saved. But in Matthew 24, 13, the context is the 70th week of Daniel. Here, the end has to do, I think, with the end of one's life that those who endure even to the point of death and they don't stop confessing Christ because they stayed put, that they remained in Christ, they're the ones who are really believers. Okay, now I'm going to flesh more of this out in our application, but it shows us the necessity for the perseverance of the saints. Now, notice in verse 23, we come to what D.A. Carson called perhaps the most difficult verse in all of the New Testament, and for that matter, the Bible, to interpret. And I think he is correct. It is difficult. But I think part of the difficulty has been allowing denominational standards and desires to infiltrate the text rather than just reading the text as it is. One of the problems is, let me just boil this uh, issue down to two possible meanings or interpretations. The big interpretation issue is what does it mean that the Son of Man comes before they finish going through the cities of Israel? There's a preterist camp. Now, what does preterism mean? Praetor means past. And the preterist view means that they believe this all happened in 70 AD. So what they believe Jesus is talking about is that they're the group of disciples, the 12, would not finishing, they would not finish evangelizing Israel until Jesus returned in 70 AD to destroy the temple. Dear ones, I don't think that that's what's being referred to at all. Okay, let me give you some reasons why. First of all, in 70 AD, Jesus' coming was not about the restoration of Israel, but it was about the destruction of Israel. Do you know that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, the promise is the restoration of Israel, not the destruction of Israel? Can Christian readers know the difference between destruction and restoration? I think we can. What's more, we see that Jesus never bodily returned as expected in 70 AD. And what's more, partial preterists who claim that this is all about the Son of Man coming in 70 AD, they have to have three comings of Christ. They have to say Jesus came the first time to atone for sin. He comes a second time to destroy Jerusalem. And he comes a third time to bring us our resurrection. Well, I'm going to show you this later in our application. But according to Hebrews 9.28, Jesus comes twice. So, no, there's a far better answer. And the answer is what Jesus is talking about is the obduracy of Israel. What does obduracy mean? It means stubbornness so that someone won't change their mind. And what Jesus is teaching is that during these last days, 
So stubborn will Israel be that they will never be fully evangelized until the future 70th week of Daniel. That you and I will never penetrate the Israelite people as a whole. They will remain obdurate, obstinate, and against the gospel. Why is that important? Because if you think that we're somehow going to evangelize the Jews during the church age, and you look at the news, and you see that they're not evangelized, it can be discouraging. It can bring about a crisis of faith. But what you have to know is that when you turn on the TV and see the news, and you see the attacks on Israel, and you see that still they have not come to faith in Messiah, everything is going on just as Jesus Christ has, in fact, foreordained. That things aren't falling apart, they're indeed falling in place. That's what we have to know. Okay, so we'll lay more of that out in our applications. Let's come to them now. We have three points for you here this morning. Number one, Christ's wisdom would have us be willing to give our lives for his gospel, but not volunteering for trouble. Again, we have to be those who, yes, we will confess Christ, and yes, you and I will not shrink back in the face of trouble, but we're not those who go out looking for it. I think that's implied by being shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Number two, we must know that true believers persevere in doctrine and deed and will confess Christ before men. That's what Jesus meant when he said, those who endure to the end will be saved. And the confession of Christ from our mouth is really evidence of the inward reality of saving faith. Number three, we should know that Israel's obduracy will last until the future 70th week of Daniel. And again, obduracy is a term that simply means they are stubbornly never changing their mind until the future 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so with that, let's begin with number one. My desire today is to help us understand and apply the wisdom that Christ came, gave to us as we go out into the world to evangelize and to be about his great commission. I think the central wisdom that Jesus gave us today is found in that phrase where he says, be shrewd as serpents, but be as innocent as doves. And I think the principle that he's laying out for us is really this, that we as believers in Christ are willing to lose our lives for Christ, but we are not volunteering for trouble. Again, as we're going to proceed in Matthew chapter 10, we see the absolute necessity to be those who confess Christ. That yes, when the crucial moment comes, we will preach who he is and what he has done. But this doesn't mean that every single person in the world is one that we should approach with the gospel. Why? Because some people, because of their sin with the high hand and because of their obstinance against the gospel, they show that they are not going to receive the gospel. And so we saw this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, this principle. Notice in Matthew 7, 6, Jesus said the same thing, really, that we're learning today. He said, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. If you want to know what it means to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves, I think you find it here in Matthew 7, 6. Let's unpack it. What is holy and what are the pearls? Well, that's the gospel. Now, what are the dogs and what are the swine? Because they don't need to be given the gospel. Well, the dogs and swine, in context, are animals that are notoriously unclean to the Jew. They are conspicuously unclean. And so the idea is that there are individuals and even groups of people that are so conspicuously anti-gospel that to go before them and give the gospel is simply casting your pearls before swine. You see, there's a mindset in Christendom and Christianity where people are overly pious, as if they think to themselves, okay, you have the crypts and the bloods that are shooting at each other, but I'm so holy that if I got in the midst and preached the gospel, they would certainly come to faith in Christ. And so there's a martyr complex that some people have. What Jesus is saying, if you're going to be shrewd as a serpent, you don't go leading your chin into the world and just take unnecessary hits. That you have to be as wise as a serpent, and yes, trouble may find you, but you're not going to go look for trouble. That's what he's revealing to us right here. 
Dear ones, you and I in our default position are those who preach the gospel to all people, but there are those who are so hardened that all they will do is if we preach them the gospel, they'll trample the gospel under their feet and they'll simply turn and tear us to pieces. And Jesus has given us the commands and the wisdom to be able to know this is an individual or this is a group that won't listen. And we just move on. And that's why Jesus says, when you are persecuted, move from one city to another. You can apply that in your circles from moving from one individual to another, from one group to another. You don't have to be in the presence of those who will tear you to pieces and tread the gospel underfoot. We have to have the wisdom to know when to move on. Uh, Remember some years ago, Mike Gendron came to this congregation and he talked about the gospel and he talked about the heresy of Catholicism. And I love one of the metaphors that he used. He said, we are like mail carriers. We are like mail carriers. Our simple job is to deliver the mail. But I think sometimes we think that we are also mail openers. No, the mail opener is God. God is the one who enables people to open the mail and to respond to the mail. Brothers and sisters, let's just stay in our lane. Let's be wise. And remember, we're the mail carriers. And the mail doesn't have to be carried to every single person who wants to destroy us, but those who God has called. That's the wisdom that I think that he's calling to us here. Okay, now, with that, let's come to our second item. And that is we learn today that it is so important to persevere in confessing Christ because the confession of Christ is evidence that we genuinely belong to Christ. Now, we saw that in Matthew 10, 22, where Jesus says, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Remember the term endured, hupo meno, that we remain in the doctrines and deeds of Jesus Christ. Now, in Matthew 10, 32, I want you to turn your Bibles there, if you will. Please turn to Matthew 10, 32. What we see in the New Testament is that those who confess Christ before men, even during the, t- the time of trial, are those who belong. And that's why Jesus will come to this. We couldn't study all of chapter 10 today. But notice in Matthew ten thirty two, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, the principle that I think we see in the Scripture is that of the perseverance of the saints. And what that means is that believers continue in faith and obedience, which leads to the confession of Christ before men. That's what we're learning here in Matthew chapter 10. See, for many years, many Christians, I was in this camp, we would often say once saved, always saved. And that is true. Once you're saved, you are always saved. Jesus promises that in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. But when you start unpacking what the person looks like who is eternally saved, it looks like one who perseveres in the faith, meaning they remain in the doctrine and deeds of Jesus Christ. Why do I always say doctrine and deed? Because doctrine is about what you believe and the deed is about what you do. And you always end up doing what you truly believe. You act on what you really believe. If you believe your car is low on gas and needs gas, you'll act on it and you'll fill it up with gas. If you think steak is better than cake for you, you'll eat a lot of steak and not so much cake. You act on what you truly believe. So in doctrine and deed, we have to remain in Christ. And if we do, it's going to be shown through what? Through our confession of Christ. Because we can't stop talking about the person and work of Christ even before men and women who don't like it. That's the idea. Okay, now, let me put up here Luke 8.15. Because this is what Jesus is saying about those who are truly saved. It's about perseverance or endurance. Notice he says, But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, notice this idea of bearing fruit, again, is doctrine indeed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that we will know a teacher by their fruit. So the fruit is the doctrine and deed, what we believe and how we act. If you act like the devil your whole life, it's a good indication that you don't believe. That's the idea. 
And so if you're never willing to confess Christ, what does it indicate? That you don't believe in Christ. Because confession is one of the deeds that we are called to do. Notice he says that we're to bear fruit with what? Perseverance. There's hupomone. The same term Jesus used in Matthew 10, 22, the idea of remaining. We remain in Jesus Christ. So when the trials and the tribulations of this world come upon us, again, we don't say, hey, I've tried Jesus and it got me in a whole heap of trouble. I think I'm going to move on to following Karl Marx or perhaps I'm going to become a Jehovah Witness. They seem to have a little quainter life or what have you. No, we remain firm in the person and work of Christ. We don't depart from his doctrine and his deeds. Brothers and sisters, that's the wisdom that Christ is giving us as you and I go out into the world during this church age. Now, I thought about a good passage that would summarize what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 10, 16 through 23. And I thought of a great summary is found in 1 Peter. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. If you wanted one verse to summarize all that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 10, 16 through 23, you find it in 1 Peter 4, 12. Notice 1 Peter 4, 12. Hope you turn there. As you're turning there, remember, Peter was addressing Christians in Asia Minor who were suffering terrible persecution. It was horrific. Many of them couldn't own jobs or own any possessions. They couldn't have a job because they were outed as followers of the way. And so they were being tremendously persecuted. And the risk was that they thought that was abnormal. Or they thought, hey, what's the benefit of belonging to Jesus if, in fact, I have this type of persecution? Maybe I'll just go on to some other religion. That was the risk. So Peter warned them. Notice what he said. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. The hatred of Christians in this world is not a strange thing. And that doesn't mean that encountering the persecutions or maybe the prosecutions before even a government is pleasant. But the worst outcome for any person is not the persecutions or the prosecutions, but it would be the abandonment of the faith, the not confessing Christ at the crucial moment. That's the idea. As I say that, I know some of you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, Eric, didn't Peter deny Christ three times? Well, he certainly did. But that wasn't the end of the story for the apostle Peter. Later, he confessed Christ to the point of being crucified upside down. Why? Because he didn't think that he was worthy of being crucified in the same way as his Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to confess Christ. And if we know in advance that all these things are going to come, we're not going to be surprised. We're not going to have a crisis of faith. It will be unpleasant, but we'll remain, we'll persevere. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's warning us in advance. Okay, now let's come to the final point. Today, Jesus told something very important for our understanding of the last days, and that is Israel will remain stubbornly against the gospel all the way through the last days until we come to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we know in advance that Israel is going to be obstinate, when we turn on the TV, we don't panic when we see, for example, back in October of 2023, Israel under attack. Do you remember during that attack in October 7th of 2023, you had, for all intents and purposes, a bunch of Philistines coming upon a bunch of Israelites out in the desert who were engaged in idolatry. And I thought, boy, nothing much has changed in the thousands of years of Israel's history. And I don't say that to say that the Israelites deserved it. Hamas is an evil organization. They need to be wiped out, and I pray that the IDF does so. But I will say that as you and I look at the news, there can be a crisis moment in our theology where we say, hey, hasn't the gospel gone out to Israel time and time again, and yet they don't believe? 
Has God's promises failed? Where is this redemption and this restoration of Israel? Jesus today, in Matthew 10, 23, hear ye, hear ye, let it be known, he is telling us they en masse as a whole, as a nation, will not come to faith during the last days. It will happen when Jesus Christ returns. That's what he's saying. They will never be fully evangelized. That way I can relax and say, God's promises haven't failed. It's exactly on the trajectory he said it would be. That's the significance of Matthew 10, 23. Let's remind ourselves, what did Jesus say? He said, but whenever they persecute you, and remember the you is the wide, oops, I don't have my pointer up now. The you is a wider group member than just the 12. We, We proved that earlier. Remember, it wasn't the 12 that were scourged in the synagogue. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, the damage that's being done by preterism to Christians in the world today, I, I cannot overstate it. Preterism and partial preterism says this is about the Son of Man coming in 70 AD. And what they claim this is about is that the disciples will not finish evangelizing Israel until Jesus returned in 70 AD to destroy the temple and sack Jerusalem. That's what they believe. Brothers and sisters, Christ's return is not a promise to destroy Israel, but to restore Israel. Do you know the return of Jesus Christ is our blessed hope? Let me ask you, is your blessed hope the destruction of the Jews in 70 AD? Or is it the return of Jesus Christ to rapture the church and to restore Israel? If it is the former, you need a checkup from the neck up. You don't understand the scriptures, and I dare say it smacks of anti-Semitism. What's more... What the scriptures clearly teach is Jesus returns twice. The partial preterist says Jesus comes three times. He comes to atone for sin, number one. Number two, he comes in 70 AD to sack Jerusalem, number two. But number three, he has to give us a third return to bring us our resurrection. Well, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9.28. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9.28, and we're going to see that that's not true. Hebrews 9.28. Please turn your Bibles there. I'll give you a moment there. I'll grab a drink. I'm getting all lathered up here. (laughs) Hebrews 9.28. Notice, very important, it says, So Christ also, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, notice the once, he came once to bear the sins of many, that's the first advent, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. Does it say that he comes a second time to smash Israel? Or for salvation for those who eagerly wait him? He comes twice. He doesn't come three times. So a far better interpretation is that what, in fact, Jesus is teaching here is that Israel will never be fully evangelized during the church age until he comes. The restoration of Israel is tied to them coming to faith. And what's going to happen is when the Son of Man comes in the 70th week of Daniel, he will bring them to faith. That's what's being taught. And we see this all over the scriptures. This is not some doctrine that's hidden. It's all over the place. Notice Romans eleven fifteen. I taught on this last week, but it bears repeating. Notice Paul here is going to be giving a lesser to greater argument. In the entire section from Romans 9 all the way through 11 is about what about Israel? If Israel's promises have failed, is God going to be faithful to our promises? It's a big deal. So notice what he does. He does a lesser to greater argument. He says, if there, that's national ethnic Israel, if their rejection, the rejection would be by God so they're not brought into faith, If their rejection is reconciliation of the world, meaning salvation to the Gentiles, which is great, the idea is how much greater? He says, what will their acceptance be? That is God accepting them back in so they come to faith. He says, but life from the dead. Life from the dead. That's the resurrection. The restoration of Israel is tied to the resurrection. So if we think the resurrection is a gospel issue, then so is the restoration of Israel because they're timed together. 
That's what. Je- so when does the resurrect- resurrection happen? When the Son of Man comes. So when the Son of Man comes, you have both the resurrection and the restoration of Israel. That's what's being taught. So why do we have to go to 70 AD and say, well, the blessed hope is the destruction of the Jews in 70 AD? We don't have to do that. There's a far better reading, and I'm going to give you more. Oops, let me back up. I forgot to give you one passage. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. Turn your Bibles there. Because I'm going to show you that the Old Testament taught the same thing, that the resurrection was tied to the restoration of Israel. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And as you're turning there, remember Daniel 12 is built off of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel 9. And so the time frame that's being alluded to here is the future seven years or the 70th week of Daniel. Notice here, Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. It begins in verse 1. It says, now at that time. Stop there. Well, what time? The church age? No, the 70th week of Daniel. The last seven years. It's at that time, what will happen? Michael the archangel, it says, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And he says, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Stop there. Jesus borrows almost word for word right from that in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, when he says, there'll be such tribulation comes upon the world such as never occurred nor ever will. What's Jesus referring to? The future 70th week of Daniel. Notice it goes on. It says, and at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. Notice Israel is going to be rescued. And then what happens? Well, Notice verse 2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There's the resurrection. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Notice the resurrection is tied to what? The rescue, that is the restoration of Israel. It's all over the place. Let's look at another passage. This is very important that we see that what Jesus was teaching us today in Matthew ten twenty three is that Israel would never be fully evangelized during these last days. There'll be evangelists, the message will go out, but they'll never be fully evangelized until the Son of Man comes in the 70th week. That's what he's teaching. Let me show you further evidence. Romans eleven twenty six. It begins with, and so. Kai hutos, and by the way, there's a great, if anyone has the Net Bible, read the notes on the Net Bible, the New English Translation, very good. What and so really means is in this way. That's probably the best reading. So it's telling us the manner in which Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. So how are they going to be saved? Well, he says, just as it is written, now he cites Isaiah 59, 20, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who is Jacob? Well, that's Israel. What does it mean that he'll remove ungodliness from Jacob? It means they'll come to faith. That's the only way you can be godly is to come to faith in the Messiah. But what does he mean the deliverer will come from Zion? Well, the deliverer is the Messiah. Make no mistake about it. The Jews knew Isaiah 59, 20 was messianic. But why does Paul take the from Zion? Because originally in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew of Isaiah 59, 20, it says that he will come to Zion. Why is Paul changing it to from Zion? Because Jesus is the one who is now seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly Zion. And that's from where he's coming. That's the grand point. He's coming from heaven. How do we know that? Well, notice here Hebrews 12.22. The writer of Hebrews says, but you, that's believers, have come to Mount Zion. How, do they, how does the writer of Hebrews understand Mount Zion? Well, notice it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels. Where is Jesus coming from? He's coming from Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Please turn your Bibles there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Very important cross-reference. Let's get this down. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Notice what it says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, And we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Where is Jesus coming from? He's coming from heaven. 
What Paul is saying is that it's this way that Israel will be saved. The Messiah is going to come from heaven and he's going to remove ungodliness from Jacob. The restoration of Israel is tied to the resurrection. So the preterist says, no, all of this happened in 70 AD. That's when this occurred in Matthew 10, 23. What I'm showing you is what Jesus is promising is that, remember, the last days were initiated by the first advent of Christ. During these last days, Israel will remain obstinate and stubborn against the gospel. But in the 70th week of Daniel, they're going to be brought to faith. They're going to be brought to faith because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and he's going to remove the ungodliness from Jacob. That's the great promise. Dear brothers and sisters, what Jesus has shown us today in Matthew 10, 16 through 23, is that we ought not to be surprised. We ought not to be surprised when we are persecuted and prosecuted at the hands of the world and even amongst our own family members. Why? Because we belong to Christ. He tells us, don't be surprised if you preach the gospel to the Israelites and yet all the way through church history, all the way through the last days, they don't believe That's the way it's going to be so that you and I know there is nothing that Jesus Christ hasn't said in advance so that we can be startled. But all the while during these last days that we're living in, you and I are to confess Christ. That's what we're due to have the gospel upon our lips and have the boldness to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to all who ask for the hope that lies within us. Dear ones, that's our mission. That's what Jesus is laying out before us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing what these last days will be like, that we're not going to be caught surprised or have a crisis of faith because you had somehow misled us, but no, you've told us in advance how things would be, whether the persecutions, the trials, the troubles, or even the obstinacy of Israel. We thank you, Lord, that we can be those who are confident that things are not falling apart but falling in place, that you're sovereignly in control of all these things. I do pray for my brothers and sisters as the world closes against us. I do pray that you would enable us to persevere, give us love and boldness to proclaim your gospel to those who are perishing. We do pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity in this uh, coming year with our family, our friends, our co-workers, those that we love, that we would have the opportunity to proclaim your gospel, that you would regenerate hearts before us, calling people that belong to you to faith. We pray that you would do that for us, that you enable us to persevere until the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.